Okay. Which one is counterfeit? I'll hold them close so you can't see. Okay, who thinks this one is counterfeit? Who thinks this one is counterfeit? Ah, uh, okay. So if I handed them to you, you would easily be able to tell. But from far away, it's harder to tell which one's counterfeit and which one's true. Um, that's because the closer you get to something, the more obvious the imitation or the authenticity. And that's why we're looking at Jesus through the Gospel of John, because John was one of Jesus's closest friends. And so he could see Jesus up close relationally in his friendship, probably in ways that other people couldn't. So all of the I am statements that we get about God, we actually get from the Gospel of John. Uh, and those came out not just in the public ministry that Jesus had, but in the private conversations that John recorded that Jesus had with him and the other disciples. And so he uniquely could authenticate that Jesus was the son of God, the prince of peace, the true word, the true bread, the true vision, the true shepherd. And today we're gonna look at the true peace and we're gonna continue this true series all the way through Easter when we'll look at Jesus as the true king. Um, but we're going to look, we were looking through some of these private conversations and the I am statements that, that John could see and authenticate Jesus for who he really was and who he really is to us. And so we're going to, today, it's the true peace. And this is from John chapter 14. So I'm going to give you a little context um, the, the 14th chapter of John, this conversation occurs at the end of the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper, but Jesus has gathered his disciples and the, he has uh, washed their feet. Um, he has um, shared with them the first communion. He's broken bread, said, this is my body. It's gonna be broken for you. This is, this is, um, this is and he passed the cup. This is my blood that's been poured out for you. And, and they're thinking this is very strange right? They have no paradigm for what's going on. It's not like that we're looking back on it and it makes sense to us. We understand the power of it. They're going through it the first time. It felt very unusual and unfamiliar. And this is a little weird. It's a little weird. Um, and he's talking about going away. He's talking about, hey, I, I'm about ready. The time is short. I'm going away. And you know, that gave a lot of fear to the disciples because every time Jesus went away, they fell apart. I mean, when he was around, they were doing okay. They had peace. They, you know, things were happening. Miracles were working. You know, people were getting fed. Like the, everything was in order when he was around. And, but every time he left, you know, they didn't have a good track record in, in emergencies when he wasn't with them. They fell apart. So now he's talking about, and it sounds a little different to them, like he's really going away. What does that mean? And he's getting, you know, they're, they're getting perplexed. They're getting confused. Their hearts are going into troubled waters. And then Jesus takes it another step and he says, and one of you is going to betray me. And they, they're not thinking betrayal as in sending me to a cross to be crucified. I mean, they, they, they're not even 
that's not in their frame of reference, not in their paradigm. So they start talking, who is it? Who's it gonna be? And Peter calls out to John, who has the seat right next to Jesus, his armor's around Jesus, they're hanging out, they're buds, he's leaning his head on his shoulder. Um, and Peter says, hey, John, can you ask Jesus, here, I'll put my hands around the microphone, hey, can you who, ask Jesus who it is? And so John does, he says, Jesus, who, who is gonna betray you? And he tells John, it's not recorded in the other gospels quite how this happened, but John being right there records what Jesus said. Jesus says, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna dip this bread in the cup and who I hand it to is gonna betray me. John records that. And, and it also says that sort of made sense because they said, okay, well, Judas is the treasurer. Maybe he's just gonna steal some money. Like they're thinking about it in very human terms. Like, like we would, because we would have no frame of reference for what's coming, for what's next, for what, for what is about to happen. And then people say, well, I'm not going to uh, betray you. P Peter stands up and says, there is no way I would ever betray you. And Jesus says, well, actually, bro, before the crow sings, you'll have denied me three times. And Jesus wasn't singling Peter out as the only person making a, like a mockery of him as if nobody else is gonna betray Jesus, only Peter. He's just making an example. He's saying that, that everybody, even my disciples, when, when the pressure's on, when our hearts go into troubled waters, we will be the ones sometimes to deny that we even knew him. Have you ever faced waters so troubled that you were tempted to deny that you knew Jesus. The disciples were in those waters. But Jesus sees our secret undiscovered sorrows. He knows our souls in adversity. And he didn't turn the disciples' confusion or trouble or sorrow into shame, in, into a corrective moment like you guys really need to get it together. You don't get it. He's not, he doesn't come at them like that to school them. He comes and he brings a word of such comfort and of such strength. And even says, you know, he says, and I'm telling you now so that when they happen, you will believe. Your, your faith will be strong. And he says this over and over. Twice in, in John 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. Let not your heart be troubled. Is he saying, don't, don't feel sadness? No, Jesus felt sadness. Was he saying, don't grieve? No. Don't feel sorrow? No. Jesus it says, scripture says Jesus was a man of many sorrows. He, he had sorrows. He was moved with compassion. He grieved over, over Jerusalem, over the children of God, over the people with no shepherd. He, he grieved when, when Lazarus died. And even though he knew he had the power to raise him from the dead, he wasn't saying, don't allow yourself to feel sorrow or not to grieve. What he's saying is don't let your heart be lost at sea. That is the, the, let not your heart be troubled. That word troubled is the word used to describe 
stormy, troubled waters on the open, dark ocean. You can feel sadness. You can feel sorrow. You can grieve without your heart being lost at sea. He's saying, don't let your heart be lost at sea. Whatever the trouble is, don't let your heart get lost in it. So we pick it up in John 14, verses 19 to 31. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jude, or sometimes called Thaddeus, not Jude Stokes, Jude Thaddeus, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not the world? That doesn't make sense to me. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not only mine, but the father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I'm going away and coming back to you. And if you loved me, you would rejoice because I said I am going to the Father. For my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you. My time is growing short. This conversation is about to wrap up. For the prince of this world is coming and he has nothing in me but that the world may know that I love the Father. And as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. We're gonna take a look at first at this, the verse that says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. We're gonna look at that, and then we're gonna go back and look at the recipe for peace. There's the world, world peace has a recipe and Jesus peace has a recipe. And then after we look at that recipe, we're going to look at the last two verses at how Jesus revealed and demonstrated his peace and revealed what his peace really looked like. So the question is, is did Jesus have a will? It's the first question. Did he have a will? Like a last will and testament. Did he have a will? Well, his soul, he committed to his father on the cross. It says, my soul I commit. I, I commit my soul unto you. These are the language that you might use in a will and testament. He left his soul. He committed his soul to his father. 
His body he left to Joseph of Arimathea for proper burial. His clothes, where did the clothes go? The soldiers. As, as the, that was actually prophesied that the, his clothes would go to those, his accusers, those that, would, that, would, uh, that crucified him. And his clothes he left for the soldiers and they divided up his clothes that kind of represented all of his earthly things. His mother, he left to the care of John, the writer of this gospel, his closest friend. And what about his disciples? And in that word disciples, you can sub yourself into that, into that category. What about his disciples? To the disciples and to us, Jesus left his peace. So that's scripture, that's what he says. My peace I give to you. Peace I leave you. It's the language of his will and testament. And not just the title to it. He didn't just write it on a piece of paper. But possession of it. And in this passage, we see that the Holy Spirit was made executor of his will and trust to ensure that we would walk and experience everything that God left for us in his will and our inheritance. That is the function, the job of the Holy Spirit. One way to look at it. Well, peace is a state of perfected well-being, absent of strife, with emphasis on relational harmony. Peace is sought out universally by every person, by every nation, every philosophy, every religion. I mean, the word peace has been so overused, it's kind of like the word love. You, you, it can mean a million things and nothing at all. I mean, I don't even, I, I try not to even use the word love or peace without explaining or going to the next level of what do I really mean by what I'm saying? Because it's been, it's been used to, to kind of brushstroke over so many even competing things. And that's why the world's counterfeits for peace are so pervasive and strong because everyone is hungry for it. I mean, I know in my life, the thing that I hungered most for was peace. My soul was in troubled waters. I rose and fell with the affirmation of friends, with the, the, how good things were going at school or at my job. I mean, everything, all the circumstances around me, all that, everything that happened day by day, I rose and fell, rose and fell. And all with it, my peace, my, my centeredness, my soul was in such troubled waters. I just, was there anything, was there any peace for this soul? Tried every philosophy, every, every thinker. I read a lot. I put together. I mishmashed things together. Let me tell you, since only Jesus has true peace, he's the only one that can give it. World peace, and I'm not talking about just world peace as peace between nations. I'm talking about the peace that the world offers, gives, extends to you. World peace and Jesus' peace have different recipes. World peace begins in ignorance of God. 
It's lived out through self-discovery and self-expression. It's plagued by sin, and it usually ends in endless trouble. So this is going to be a little bit of an edible sermon, since Jesus is the true bread. When I say world peace starts in ignorance of God, world peace is, is uh, actually, let me back up. I just got ahead of myself just for one second. World peace recipe. Yes, I know that looks like the Starship Enterprise, <laughs> but I am a Star Trek fan. So world peace recipe, self-discovery plus self-expression usually leads to trouble. And you can see it, right? Every Hollywood movie, every TV series, every cartoon, every fantasy book, everything in our culture in some way or another says the answers to life and happiness and peace are within you. Follow your heart. How many times, how many Disney movies follow your heart? Well, guess what? Your heart, apart from God, is a liar. Be yourself. How many times have you heard that? Be yourself. Well, who are you apart from God? Find your voice. Discover the God in you, right? These are the themes that the world projects and offers as the recipe for peace in the world. It's, and it's always, it's like, it's about that the, all the answers lie within you. And I'm not, I'm not saying, yes, God has put treasure in earthen vessels. There is amazing things inside of you. You are fearfully and wonderfully created. But it's somewhat like an apple looking in on itself at the seeds and saying, wow, what are those seeds? What's the purpose of life when they've never seen a tree? If an apple has never seen a tree, never seen an orchard, how could an apple possibly know what the seed is for? Now, you can see that the seed has some magic in it, something supernatural, something beyond itself. There's something in the seed, right, that's not like the rest of the flesh or the skin. Or the, There's something in there. But apart from having knowledge of the tree and the orchard, there is no way for an apple to discover the meaning of life or to have peace by looking inside itself. That's why what the world gives, these are seductive deceptions. The world gives and extends this peace with a smile, and the next minute, it revokes it with a frown. Right? We've all seen it. Charlie Sheen, Tanya Harding, Lance Armstrong, Barry Bonds, Ben Affleck, Catherine Hagel, Tiger Woods, Mel Gibson, Lindsay Lohan, all of these celebrities that you would know, and the list goes on and on. The world gives for a moment when you're in good graces or you're useful or you're functional or you're in vogue or you're part of the fad, you're part of the trend, and the next minute revokes it, pulls the rug right out from under you. The world offers trends and fads and vanities. They all will eventually cheat us. The world can put you on stage one minute and banish you to oblivion the next, the next minute. I remember I learned this in, in sixth grade. I started as a relatively invisible, short, nerdy kid. And we, yeah. I, I was really, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Was that me? Hi. Yeah. Thank you. 
Yes, Lord. So this was back in the day when um, we had DARE officers, drug abuse resistance education. The DARE officer would come to our school and bring the van with the big stereo and maybe like a Dodge Viper race car that had all the DARE paint all over it. And, and they encouraged all of the different classes and the different groups to come up with these skits to celebrate, you know, and, and um, to celebrate, you know, that we would say no to drugs and never do any drugs and how really apart from God, right, that doesn't work for anybody, but it was nice to come up with these skits. And there were the four cool guys in my class, and they decided they really wanted to write a dare rap. Um, and because I was pretty good at writing, they invited me, said, hey, come, come and be part of our, our group, and can you, you know, write the lyrics for us? And so for a while, I started writing lyrics, and all of a sudden, I was part of the the cool crowd. I was, I, the Fab Four became the Fab Five. And I got to go up on stage with them and do the rap with them. And all of a sudden, my self-image and everything, and all that's getting watered, and I'm, I'm, I'm feeling at peace. I have this perfected well-being, right? There's no strife. And, and, and all, all, all this relational harmony that I'm sensing, and I'm getting all built up. And then, like, two weeks later, somebody found out that I was friends with a kid who was homeschooled, like that's a crime, <laughs> and the wrong girl two rows over liked me. And all of a sudden, whoop, what the world gave, the world revoked my peace and with my self-image attached. Because the world, or, the world gives and revokes belonging value, affirmation, and peace all the time. But God does not. God does not revoke your belonging, your value, your affirmation, or your peace ever. What Jesus left for you is permanent. It's durable. And no matter what the devil throws at you, what the world can say, you do not need to be troubled. Your heart does not need to be lost at sea. The peace of Jesus is not like the peace of the world. Jesus enjoys perfect well-being with the Father and thus with all creation, unmarred by sin. His peace becomes the fruit of our pardon the very composure of our mind, the way we think, right? This is the peace he purchased for us. It's the peace he preached to us. It's the peace he signed over as an inheritance to us. And it's the very same peace the angels announced in Luke chapter two. Behold, peace is coming to earth. Peace on earth. God is sending his peace on earth and his goodwill for all people, anyone who would believe. It's the same peace. The prophet Isaiah said he's going to be called the prince of peace. This peace is not like the peace of the world. And what Jesus' peace does and what Jesus' peace is, is not the same. It's not with the same ingredients. It's not baked with the same things. Jesus' peace is peace with God. 
peace within yourself, peace with oneself, and peace with other people, regardless of what they're doing, regardless of the injustice, regardless of the craziness. Jesus' peace is peace with God, peace with oneself, and peace with all of creation. It's not a formality, but a real blessing. Jesus' peace begins in grace. It is lived out through our love obedience as one word. We're gonna spend some time on this. Love obedience as one word. It is lived out through our love obedience. It is untouched by sin and it ends in God's manifested glory. Jesus in the passage says, I will manifest myself to you. Behold, my father and I, we will come and we will dwell with you. You will experience peace, unbroken, unmarred, beautiful, life-giving relationship with God and with yourself in my presence. And from there, you can be at peace with anyone. The good news is that this peace has been given to us, given to us as an inheritance. So, why do we have so little peace? I mean, if I took a piece, I mean, I'm, I'm asking myself that same question. This is, why do we experience so little of the peace that Jesus left for us and promised for us? Well, we follow the wrong recipe. If you're cooking Jesus' peace, with self-discovery, self-expression, and the affirmation of others, the cake will collapse. You take it out of the oven, and it will fall flat into the middle of the pan. And in this passage, you know, you might be tempted to think that the ingredient problem, what do you think the ingredient problem is? you might be tempted to think that the ingredient problem is obedience. But I believe in the text, Jesus says it is a love problem, a love obedience problem. And I want to illustrate this. Because you, over and over in the text, he says, if you love me, you'll follow my commandments. If you keep my words, those who love me. It's, it's all about this. And every phrase Love and obedience are connected in the same sentence. And so, let me, uh, right, there's this connection between loving him and keeping his commandments. But love obedience is really one concept. Where there is love obedience for Christ, there is value for his favor, there's a reverence for his authority, and an entire surrender of the whole person to his direction and government. Right, this, this kind of obedience is not a burden. 
We can look at that text and we can see all about keeping his commandments, keeping his word. We can look at other people who don't have peace and say, well, it's just an obedience problem. It's just an obedience problem. It's just an obedience problem. If they just did this, that, and the other, then they, wouldn't, they would have peace and they wouldn't be in the problems that they're in. And it puts us and it separates us. And basically what we're saying is we have no need of you. I don't need to get into your mess. I can stay where I am. You can have your mess. I'll follow my path. All's good. Praise God. That's, that's not it. You can look at that text and you can be so, you can get so bent over under the burden of obedience that you can't. And I want to keep illustrating this a little bit more. That, this kind of obedience isn't a yoke of burden because Jesus, his, his yoke is light. Right? When you have the want to in your heart, obedience is not a burden. This kind of obedience is a glorious invitation to cooperate with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit not only is the executor of the trust of Jesus or the, the will of Jesus, but he is the master chef, your resident master chef with the complete unabridged recipe book that, that will add all of the right ingredients in your heart that he will, and he will lead us into all truth. He will teach us all things and he will bring to us the remembrance of everything that glorifies Jesus in our heart so that when we follow the conduct of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, then we will feel and experience the comfort of the Spirit. When we follow the conduct of the Spirit, we experience the comfort of the Spirit. And we really need to stop trying to manage our sin or devise a pain-free way out of our disobedience. Because disobedience in reality, when there's a delta between love and obedience, that's idolatry. That's a love problem, not a behavior problem. When we see Jesus, he loved his, everything he saw his father do, he did without delay, without argument. Everything he heard his father do, he said without delay and without argument. Everything he saw in heaven, he animated and expressed in the physical world without delay and without argument, with no idol, with nothing in between. There was no space between his love and his obedience. There was no space between his love and his obedience there sometimes is in ours. And the greater that space, that's where idolatry is. That's where, that's where our love problem exists. Having knowledge of Christ's commands in our heads is not enough. Because from there, yes, we can change some of our behaviors, but they won't last. Let me illustrate. So, um, one of my friends, uh, a few years back, he was having some real challenges in his marriage. And we met weekly for almost two years talking through marriage problems that he was having. And he would, over and over, he would, you know, he would talk about, I'm not going to say these words 
anymore, and I am going to say these words, and I'm going to the tweaks to my, the, I'm going to make this tweak to my schedule because that will make things better and give us more time for this, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to modify my behavior here, and it was like tweaking all the levers and the knobs of the marriage kind of like a system. Like if I just get all these levers right and I'm doing these behaviors, then, then it will live and it will keep going. And I, I mean, I got to this point where all of these behaviors weren't, they weren't really changing anything. And I, th- th- in this moment of just almost holy exasperation, holy and dance, I said, do you love her? Right? Do you love her? Do you? And, and his response was, well, yeah. And he starts, yes, I do. He was kind of taken aback by the question. And he's like, well, I'm doing these things. I'm, we're trying. I'm trying. I'm trying hard. I'm doing all these behaviors. And it was kind of like, it was kind of like on his, sometimes on our, on our imagine a tree, like an apple tree that has no apples. Well, that's bearing no fruit. Well, we can go and buy a bushel of apples and nail the apples on the branches, on the trees, and it will look like it's fruitful. But in two weeks, those apples are going to decay. They're going to... Any fruit that doesn't come from the life-giving roots is no fruit at all. Love is the root. Obedience is the fruit. Love is the root. Obedience is the fruit. We can't come to our Christian walk, identify some obedience problem, and then pick up apples and nail these behaviors on the tree and call it a day. Because in two weeks, those apples are brown and mushy, and they fall off, and it leaves a tree with no apples. We must keep Christ's commands in our hearts, not just our behaviors. We've said love is not a feeling, it's a set of behaviors. But I would say love is not just a feeling to feel or a set of behaviors to do. Love is the attitude, the motivation, the very intention of the heart of the believer. And from that love, is all of the fruit of obedience. We must keep Christ's commands in our hearts. This is both the duty and the dignity of a disciple. And this is the function of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, to lead our hearts in love obedience, to pull out everything that exists as a delay or as a gap or an argument or an affront or an idol that keeps love and obedience separate. It is one word. For Jesus, there is no difference between love and obedience. Love is obedience. His love was obedience. Believers who call Jesus Savior will go to heaven. But believers whose hearts are yielded to Jesus as Lord in love obedience will experience the true peace that Jesus left as an inheritance here on earth. 
Union with Christ is the life of a believer. That's our life, our union with him. And we experience that union through the the Holy Spirit, our relationship to Jesus through the Holy Spirit. And this knowledge, the knowledge of this union is our unspeakable joy and satisfaction. This is our true peace. This is the peace that Jesus left for us. And this peace cannot be understood well by association alone. This was the problem of the disciples. The disciples knew that Jesus had true peace. Even in the midst of uh, a storm, they, he was sleeping right in the boat. They're freaking out. He's not. They can see he has peace in the storm. Jesus didn't wake up and conjure down peace. Jesus gave out of the peace he had to calm the storm. His disciples knew that Jesus had peace, but they only knew it by association. And so anytime when they thought Jesus was going to walk out the door or when they, you know, when he wasn't going to be around, they were perplexed and confused and their hearts were going into troubled waters. And that's sometimes I want to, I want to, to, I want to offer that that could be why we are freaking out so much is because our experience of true peace is by association. You are experiencing the true peace of Jesus through the life of your sister or through the life of your mother or through the life of the believers in your row at church. You are experiencing the true peace of Jesus by association in church. And as soon as you walk out the door, it's troubled waters. The true peace of Jesus goes with you. The true peace of Jesus is not by association with anyone else. The true peace of Jesus is peace with God, peace with yourself, and peace with all of creation, independent of what's going on around you. You need to experience the true peace of Jesus by indwelling experience. So let's compare our current level of peace, right? the peace that we're walking in, maybe the peace that you're walking in with the peace that Jesus demonstrated in these last two verses and we'll close. This will be my first and only Pentecostal close. (laughs) But get ready, prayer team. He said, I will no longer talk much with you for the prince of this world is coming and he has nothing in me, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Now sometimes, I've heard it preached several times, I've heard it come out of the mouth of many, many people over the years, that this, this title, Prince of This World, is a designation of power, like he actually has authority over this world. But Jesus, I believe, was pointing out Satan's self-delusion. The prince of this world, the guy who thinks he has power around here, is coming. But I say to you, he has nothing in me. He hasn't got anything to hold against me. He has no hook in me. He has nothing. He has nothing in me. He has no ability to dislodge, dismove, terrorize me, traumatize me anyway inside. He cannot. He has nothing in me. Yeah. 
Christ is saying, I see my enemy rallying again, preparing to make a furious onset and so to gain by terror and violence that which he could not gain by temptation and seduction. But since Christ had done no evil, Satan had no legal power against him. Therefore, though Satan prevailed to crucify him, he could not prevail to terrify him. Though he hurried him to death, yet Satan could not provoke him to despair. Satan could not send the heart of Christ into troubled waters. It was impossible. Satan had nothing in him. Nothing. Christ's eye to the Father's commandment. Right, the Father asked Jesus to suffer and die. The Father invited Jesus through the door of the cross so that he could bring us all with him into the kingdom of God. The fact that the Father invited Jesus through the cross removed the offense of the cross. To everyone of the day, crucifixion was the most shameful, embarrassing way to be made a public mockery and killed violently in a public setting. It was the, the most dehumanizing thing that could be done to you. It was offensive in the existential sense of the word. But because the Father invited Jesus through that door. Scripture says, for the joy set before him, the offense of the cross in Jesus's eyes was removed. Jesus bore up under that invitation with cheerfulness, a joy that was before him that overcame the reluctance of his flesh. The offense of the cross was removed by the invitation of our heavenly father. And with true peace, Jesus announced, arise, let us go. Not because it was gonna be easy, not because it wasn't gonna be painful, not because he wasn't gonna have sadness or sorrow going through it, but because His relationship with God, was, with, with the Father, was unbroken. It was perfected well-being. There was, there was nothing in the way. And because of that invitation, he could walk through and face even the most dehumanizing day of all days and not despair. His heart was not in troubled waters. When Satan comes to send our hearts to troubled waters and to steal our peace, he thinks he has something in us. He thinks he has something in you because everyone in this room, we've all sinned. That is why we must stand in our inheritance. That is why we must see ourselves as we are, completely hidden in Christ. The peace that Jesus had and has, he left for you and for me. 
unbroken, unmarred, undisturbed relationship with the God of all creation, with our heavenly Father. Peace with yourself. You make sense in the presence of God. You don't out of it. Peace with yourself. And because of that, you can have peace with all of creation, independent of the trouble around you. When Satan's interests in us are crushed and decayed, our true peace emerges. And with it comes joy more powerful than any trouble. With true peace, we can say to anything, anyone, any day, arise, let us go. Stand with me. team, can you come forward? If you know that your peace, your experience of peace with God, with yourself, with creation is in troubled waters and rises and falls with all manner with affirmations that, that you have added. The recipe of your peace is so much about looking in on yourself and self-discovery and self-expression and the affirmation of others to a point where you are just up and down and up and down with every volley. Don't leave today without receiving the true peace receiving the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, and the indwelling, resident, master chef, and executor of the will of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, who comes to lead us into all truth, teach us all things, bring to remembrance everything that glorifies Jesus, to grow our, in our hearts and remove every argument and delay and idol that separates our love and obedience so that we might fully experience every promise and everything that God has left for us in this world, in the land of the living. Don't leave today without coming forward. Don't leave today without receiving for yourself the true peace. So we'll be up here as long as it takes to pray for people. And I'm gonna say a blessing and you are welcome to walk with the Prince of Peace into your week. But we're gonna, we're gonna stay here and dwell in his presence for a few moments. Heavenly Father, I'm so grateful for the peace we experience with you, that we have unbroken fellowship with you. Lord, I pray that you would lead us. Holy Spirit, that you would lead us into all truth, that you would lead us. Work in our hearts. Bring, into, bring us into love obedience that we might experience fully the peace that Jesus has.
that the peace that Jesus left for us. In Jesus' mighty name.